Today's episode of the Strength Talk podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, is brought to you by the Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, the Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, the Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to the brand new Strength Doc podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, with me, Dr. John Russin. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast, and I'm sure as hell not your run-of-the-mill strength coach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with the Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, we have an awesome guest for you. Dean Somerset is with us. We're talking about superhuman planks, what it takes to be a writer in the fitness industry, and everything in between. Let's get right into the conversation with Dean Somerset. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with the brand new Strength Doc podcast hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, I have one of the most innovative minds in the fitness industry with us, Dean Somerset. What's going on, man? Oh, man, I kind of feel bad now. You're saying that I'm most innovative, but I just steal from everyone else who does good stuff. You know, there's some truth to that, but you repurpose things so much better than the original product, so I call that innovation. I don't know. Fair enough. I'll take that. <laughs> so I know it's your birthday weekend, and I really appreciate you jumping on the show today because, you know, it's a Saturday, college football's back. I know you're a busy guy, so your time is precious, and I really appreciate that. Not a problem, man. I'm glad we were able to make it connect. I mean, it took a couple of efforts to get both of our schedules lined up. And you're a busy guy, too, so I appreciate you taking the time out to be able to sit down and talk shop for a bit. Yeah, no doubt, man. I, I want to start things off just uh, a question after reading something a couple of years ago that you had this anecdote. And it was you in your high school weight room, and you were like rehabbing an injury or something. It was kind of like your first go around with strength training. And I think you were on the bench press, and there was some chick walking by, and you're like, man, I really want to impress her today. So you threw up a couple wagon wheels on each side of the bar, and you ended up getting pinned under the bar. Coaches had to come down. It was a huge scene in the weight room. Oh, yeah. I, w- I want to say that you've evolved a little bit as a coach and as a practitioner since then. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to get rid of the meathead itis that runs through your veins. I mean, especially if you love what you're doing. But uh, I-, I haven't uh, pinned myself quite as severely since then. So it's been pretty good to be able to do. But uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's probably got stories like that too, where they're like, oh, I'm going to try something here. And they just get absolutely smoked by the way. I think I went from 225 up to 315. And my best at that point was 245. So I mean, I'm saying 315. But on the internet, it's really 405. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've done something similar. So I can remember the summer after my eighth grade, it was like, all right, now you're going to go lift heavy for football. So I was moving into high school. My first time in the weight room, I did this session that was like bench press, squats, deadlifts. And then like we finish off with just like meathead curls. And I remember walking out of that weight room and not being able to move my arms. And the next day, my chest was so sore, it almost had bruising under it. So I feel your pain on that one. I'm sure the follow-up set of all of that was probably crying in the corner because your nervous system was so smashed out. But you're doing doing pretty much a one-man powerlifting meet. And then you're doing bicep curls afterwards because, I mean, you just have to do that at the end of any kind of heavy strength work, right? The fact of the matter, I didn't even do it to myself. That was our our high school weightlifting coach. He actually put me through that as my first workout. So, you know, that's what 
guys like you and I came from. That was our up, upbringing in the weight room. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to do things stupid before you can figure out what's right and wrong. So, I mean, I, I made a lot of mistakes when I was doing training. So I was able to learn from some of them and not learn from the other ones. So then I'm able to t say to my clients, you know, if you do this, you're probably not going to straighten your arms out for four days. So just don't do that. And it makes it a lot easier when it comes to coaching other people how to do things. It comes with a lot of experience, uh, personal experience, coaching experience. If you want to get better at what you're doing, it definitely comes with time and those man hours in the gym, training yourself, and then obviously training others as well. Yeah. Now, most people know your name, and for those who don't, you know, Dean, you're one of the best strength coaches I think out there, but also you kind of run the line of being a quote-unquote physio up there in Canada as well. And I would argue that you're doing things along the lines of rehabilitation and physical therapy far better than majority of the physical therapists down here in America. So where do, where do you see the line between, you know, strength and conditioning, physical therapy, general performance, and how you sit in the industry right now? Um, I, I kind of developed a, more of a niche for myself than probably ever existed before. Like my main area is post rehab. So, uh, to say that I do rehab better than physios, I appreciate the compliment, but I don't think that that's quite justified or apt because, uh, I don't do a lot of like the, the hands-on treatment type stuff. Like when you get somebody who's doing like ultrasound, interferential, uh, dry needling, acupuncture, IMS, uh, grass and ART, any of that kind of stuff. I don't touch any of that specifically. A lot of it is just looking at how the body moves and then trying to get it to move in a way that's, I guess you could say more anatomically beneficial to the person or just in a way where they don't hurt as much as they did before. So, I mean, a lot of the, the concepts that I use are just definitely strength training concepts. Like amazingly, powerlifting training works really well for rehab because it teaches you basic things like how to line your joints up so you get the best advantageous positions from it, how to brace, how to breathe, how to set yourself up for success, how to develop tension and re relax tension. So, I mean, when it comes to how the body moves, the way that I've approached things is how do I get better results for my clients? Sometimes I do have to send them out for things like physiotherapy, chiropractic, um, massage therapy because they get way better results than I could from a stretch or from a strengthening exercise. So in terms of how I developed my training aspect of things, a lot of it just comes down to seeing what works and what doesn't. I mean, there's a lot of things I can do inside a gym and there's a lot of things I can't do. So I'm willing to have clients be referred out. And there's been quite a few times where I'll go and take a client through an assessment and say, I can't help you right now. Just simply due to the fact that everything that we were doing was creating either pain or some sort of aberrant movement. So I would have to refer them out to say, you know, you got to go work with this other person for a little while. And if anything, they'll just give me a second opinion to be able to re relay information to me that I might not have otherwise had. So in terms of how I'm approaching rehab, a lot of it comes down to does the person move okay? Does the person move in a way that creates a problem? Or is there something where I need to refer that person out? So that's essentially where my niche is. It's kind of like right in between where the rehab professional would be and where the dedicated strength and conditioning aspects would be. So I try to use a lot of different modalities, things like isolation exercises, powerlifting techniques, uh, neur neural training, things like speed, agility, quickness, um, pretty much anything I can get my hands on that might produce the result we're looking for. I think that's where you and I really get along in our methodologies because I think we both sit between performance and physical therapy. And what I've seen in my career is I would say 80% of people out there, 
can get better, they can get out of pain, they can improve their dysfunctional patterns just by moving correctly. And obviously there are those times, like you're saying, that you need that referral out, maybe to have some gold standard uh, manual therapies, chiropractic manipulations, whatever it may be. But for a vast majority of people, they just need to ergonomically learn to move properly. And that takes care of a lot of orthopedic dysfunction, injuries in the past, and it can really nip those things in the butt before it even becomes a, a longer chronic issue. Yeah, absolutely, it can. Um, when you're saying move properly and all that kind of stuff, I, I, I've always kind of found that to be kind of a, a quizzical statement just due to the fact that it's always such a moving target as far as what proper, good, and optimal is. I mean, a lot of the time I'll get a client in, let's say they're 60 years old, they got osteoarthritis everywhere, and they got a knee that's hurting them. There's no way that person is going to move optimally based on the fact that they're in such a degenerated state. So I'm just trying to get them to move better. And in many ways, it's very much like uh, just getting them further to the right-hand side of the graph. If I can get them closer to being that optimal point, we might never hit it, but if I can get them to move in a better way that doesn't produce pain or doesn't produce symptoms, that's usually one step ahead. And that might take six or seven years to get a client to move in a way that's making them get stronger or better in any way possible. But I mean, they might never get to optimal or what could be considered proper movements. But as long as we're getting them better, that's the big goal that I look for. And that's one of those things where, no, you may never be perfect, but who is? You know, yeah. are Olympic gold medalists perfect movers? No. You know, are NFL all pros perfect movers? Probably not. But if we can just improve the movement capacities of people, especially with people that are comorbid in nature, so they have a lot of different orthopedic systemic dysfunctions going on, if we can improve one, two, maybe three of those dysfunctions, we can really put back together the general, the gross function of that person. Absolutely. And I mean, when you're talking about athletes, you're talking with an entirely different uh, desire and outcome needed. Like a lot of the time, you'll have an athlete who, even if they're a walking train wreck, they still have to compete. Like I had a client a little while ago who it was just a consult to work with uh, her athletic director. She was going to the Olympics and she had a whole bunch of hip pain and this was her chance to have like her second gold medal. So it wasn't a thing where I could literally say, oh, well, you shouldn't train, you shouldn't compete. Because imagine trying to tell an Olympic athlete you're not going to the Olympics because you have a sore hip. Yeah, it would have been great for the long-term viability of the individual, but at the end of the day, that's their training goal and that's their training dream. So if we deny them of that, then something's going to happen down the line where they're either going to get frustrated or give up, and maybe they could make it through. I mean, there have been a few clients that I worked with who they were just walking train wrecks, and I'm like, all right, we're on a time limit here. How long are you going to be able to get your training out, and is it going to be able to take you past the point of your competition? So you were talking earlier about training a few people for Ironman. I've done that too. And if they spend nine months or 12 months or even three or four years to get ready for a big event like that, to tell them three months out, no, you can't do it because you're in pain, that, that's going to just destroy them. So a lot of the time I'll work with a client and say, okay, let's see if we can get you through this event and then we'll find a way to pick up the pieces when it's all done, especially if it's something where it's literally their job. Like you get a client who comes in who it's like, oh, I just feel like I want to do an Ironman. We got to weigh the desire of them completing that event and what the outcome is going to be. Like if I have a client who's like, oh, I just want to be able to try this race and see what happens. And they get to a point where they have to go to physio three days a week for the next six months to be able to get back on track. Well, that's going to be a huge cost of doing business when it comes to just getting them to compete in that event. 
So it might not be worth it to them. Whereas if you get that client who was going to the Olympics, that's their entire reason for training and that's their entire reason for competing. That's their job. That's their business. So one way or another, you got to get them to do it. And it doesn't necessarily- uh, yeah, that's the important thing about being a, a good coach that really understands the individual too. Weighing uh, the cost-benefit analysis is really, really big because everyone's is going to be different. You know, one person walking in, like you're saying, trying to go to the Olympics and another one being a recreational athlete trying to do a half Ironman them going into competition is totally different and as a practitioner with my practitioner hat on I look at putting somebody into an event which may be in they may be in pain you look at what is their likelihood of exacerbating an injury or producing a new injury but when it comes to the people that literally have to do it for a living that are playing on Sundays that kind of stuff you need to really really do your homework and understand what the complications may be if they do go and participate and compete and what the repercussions could possibly be. And really that's a, that's a deep analysis that takes a lot of time when you get to those top levels. Absolutely. And a lot of it's just a guessing game. A lot of it's like, well, let's see what happens. I mean, I was fortunate enough to work with a couple of the athletic directors for some of the national teams and I'd give them my opinion and say, what do you guys think? And they'd come back with what their opinion was and then ask what my opinion was again. But a lot of it came down to, this is important for this individual. There's no way in hell they're going to not do it if given the opportunity. So let's try to just get them through it and get them through it as best as possible. So, I mean, there have been a couple of times where I've told people there's no way you're going to be able to compete, at least not to be able to produce the times you want to do. Those are hard conversations to have. I'm sure you've had them too, but it's one of those things where you have to say to the person, we got to look out for your best interest down the line. And it's not something where it's like three months from now, you complete the race and everything's happy again. It's 10 years from now, are you going to be able to walk? You have to always be able to balance that concept, right? Absolutely. And really looking at uh, athletes as opposed to like the general fitness population, I've really seen uh, the industry move in two ways. So there's a lot more really, really fit people on the borderline of actually being like exercise addicts. And then on the opposite end, especially in America, there's that large sedentary population. But for the general person that really has no competition goals in mind, telling them that uh, they're not able to do you know, their exercise modality of choice, that's also a pretty tough conversation to have, especially if you're a practitioner or one of those coaches like yourself that are really bridging the gap in rehab and performance. Yeah, and a lot of that comes down to showing them a way that they can still get that training benefit to make sure that they're understanding that they're not going to lose fitness but also get them into a state where they're not going to just smash themselves to bits. So that comes down to just understanding the cross-training element of things and making sure they can get into a decent position. Like a lot of hockey players might start doing uh, cardio cross-training and they might start running, where cycling might be a better option as far as the carryover goes between hockey and the skating stride and what cycling provides. So, I mean, just getting them into a position where they can still train without beating themselves to bits becomes huge. It does, and it takes some focus uh, on the part of the athlete or the client and also the coach to get them there because many times, uh, especially down here south of the border, they'll go to their primary care physician because you know that's the gatekeeper of our medical system. And the easy answer if you come in with like low-level knee pain, low-level hip tightness, well, just stop exercising. Stop doing what you're doing. 
Yeah. But I hate that answer. I hate that more than anything. And I cringe every single time I get a new patient or client into my office that was told that because then you're kind of in this pissing match with somebody that has a DO or an MD behind their name. And really, I don't believe that they're the movement scientists that we are as coaches. They don't understand movement and the applications of that to rehabilitate something to improve function. So uh, that's one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to co-managing patients and clients. Absolutely. And to in the doctor's defense, they're giving information that's going to be as widely acceptable as possible. And they're also going to kind of do what they need to to protect their butt. I mean, their design, doctors go through schooling, not necessarily to work on the health end of things. They absolutely have to be able to counsel people on helping them. But at the end of the day, they're there to keep people from dying. So when somebody comes in with, you know, a sore knee, I mean, they got 10 people out in the waiting room who need to have their diabetes medication adjusted so they don't start stroking out on you. So in terms of like needs analysis, that's like something coming into you who has a hangnail. I mean, yeah, you could work on it, but I mean, is that a good use of your time or is that something that you really need to do a lot of things with? You're going to probably refer that out, but at the end of it, it's... The problem with a lot of people is that they're having to go into a primary care as the primary care rather than going to somebody who can help them with that movement assessment. I mean, yeah, I know that it's standardized so that doctors have to see the people to make sure that it's you know, recognized and that it's accounted for and that it doesn't become something worse where maybe they need to get some imaging done or whatever. But a lot of the top, or a lot of the time it's just making sure that they're in the right hands. In the right hands is for sure. And down here we have uh, direct access as physical therapists in the majority of states. I want to say uh, over 40 of the states in our country have direct access, meaning people can walk off the streets into the office, get evaluated and start in physical therapy. And in reality, in the fitness industry, everything's direct access. So there's a lot of trainers and there's a lot of coaches uh, having to evaluate and having to really put on their screening hats and really doing the right thing when they're getting these new athletes in because in the physical demise that our our western society is currently in we're seeing a lot more dysfunction a lot more comorbidities in the otherwise healthy populations that are going in seeking out things like personal training group training and overall fitness yeah absolutely I mean, a lot of it just comes to who do you go to and who's going to be the best case. And some of that is just going to get missed just due to the fact that people don't know who to go to. And that's the confusion of it. Um, you know, the identification of figuring out who to go to in which situations, it seems super simple, but it can be confusing, especially for the lay person uh, when it comes to the medical or fitness community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's like me trying to figure out who to go to for developing a website. Do I go to somebody who does SEO, copywriting, web design? Do I need somebody who can do a little bit of everything? I mean, it's going to be kind of the same concept. Who do you go to? Yeah, we, have, we were just talking about that too. We have the same problem. Who do we need to do? Because we've studied the body our entire lives uh, when it comes to business, application, marketing, sales copy, all of that. We don't necessarily know a whole lot and we have to seek it out. So <laughs> we're in the same boat on that. Yeah, I'd rather squat for an hour straight than write a page of sale copy. <laughs> I'd second that. I'd second that for sure. Now, I wanted to ask you about something that I think we have a similar view in, in uh, ab training and more specifically the plank movement. Yeah. And 
I, you've written a bunch on this, uh, some on your own website, some on T Nation, and I really like what you have to say about the optimal positioning for a plank to be executed from, but also the kind of parameters that you use and the kind of tension that you try to teach your clients. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it just comes down to what is the goal of that exercise. For most of the people that I give a plank to, it's not about training their abs to get more of a six-pack or anything like that. It's what is the core going to be able to do to the rest of the body. So most of the time, I'll use a plank as a hip mobility exercise or as a thoracic mobility exercise. And a lot of that just comes down to why is the, the hip restricted or why is the thoracic spine restricted? Well, it's probably picking up slack and creating tension because there's something that's not happening down at the core. So we do a front plank where we work on generating maximum core tension, um, getting the abs to brace hard, getting the glutes to brace hard, breathing with fast, hard exhalations to try to create kind of like a, a neural upramp in what's going on with the core. That makes the spine feel more stable and the body per uh, perceives it to be more stable. So therefore the hips and the thoracic spine don't need to lock up quite as much as they were before and all of a sudden you've got new mobility. So it's, it's pretty cool to be able to see that and when you show it to a client and it's like, here, you just did this 10 second plank move and now we just tripled your hip mobility. How does that make you feel about buying training sessions from me? Well, it tends to close the deal on its own. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's your closer. So if you, you guys want to go train with Dean Somerset, he's going to put you into a plank for the last movement and really be the closing deal. So more along the lines of planking, uh, if you were to bring out a plank for the first time with a client, yeah. I'm interested on what you're teaching of the setup at the shoulders, but also the setup at the pelvic girdle and the lumbo-pelvic uh, position would be. Yeah, I mean, most of the time I try to keep it as simple as possible. I show them what I want them to do, show them what I don't want them to do. So I'll give them an example. I'll be like, here's how I want you to brace in your plank, and then I'll go through like two or three scenarios of like a rounded back, like a really big cat camel back and say don't do it like this and then I'll go into like a big spine extension where it looks like the low back is just massively crooked out say don't go like this and, and then get back to the position that I want them to be in and then when they're doing it I try to get them to cue on getting their glutes to squeeze hard so if I can get their glutes to squeeze hard in that plank position that tends to put their pelvis into kind of the best alignment possible like you get somebody who's going into a massive anterior pelvic tilt they're not going to be able to get their glutes to fire at all. So if they can get their glutes into a bit more of a position where they can fire their glutes, it's going to give them a chance to kind of lock the hips down, lock the abs down. And then from there, we don't really have to do too much. If their glutes start to kind of like quiver and do anything like that, they're, they're not able to get it into the right position to make the hips fire up really hard. So at that point, then it's just, okay, well, can you fire your glutes harder? And I'll poke them in the butt, the side of the butt, not like right in the middle of it, but, uh, I'll poke them in the butt to say these glutes need to be hard and get them to actually feel some of that tactile feedback to the point where they're able to actually feel what's going on. And then for the shoulders, it doesn't really become too difficult. I'll try to get them to keep their chest as far away from the floor as possible so that way they get a little bit of scapular protraction so they're not just dropping right between their shoulder blades and getting that scapular wing going on. And then from there, I get them to try to squeeze their armpits. So that's going to activate a lot of the lat muscles, serratus muscles and just keeping them as stable as possible. From there, it's just try and pull your elbows towards your toes without letting go of the tension in your glutes and in your abs. So it's trying to get them to just add layers of tension on top of layers of tension. 
I think the, the lumbo pelvic fault that I see all the time is people trying to get into a quote unquote neutral lumbo pelvic posture, meaning that they're going from a severe anteriorly tilted pelvic position into a less anteriorly tilted pelvic position. And they have that inability to really tension down through the posterior chain, the glutes, the thoracolumbar fascia. Yeah. And it's one of those things that's really hard to break that habit once it's ingrained. Uh, you know, I've had clients come in and they've been planking for five, 10 minutes at a time for the last 20 years yeah. in this shitty posture. And it's one of those things once they're able to master, um, you know, a slight butt up position, a true neutral pelvic position, and really having those glutes firing off and maybe coming into a slight flexion at the hip. That's one of those things that uh, the tension, the neuromuscular control is just so much more enhanced if we can maintain that position. And the same thing goes for the shoulders. Uh, one of the things that I've had really good success with is literally grasping the hands. So like interlocking the fingers and really just trying to uh, stimulate your neuromuscular system to contract maximally and really having that tension from your hands drive up into the upper extremities and then go back into the more proximal shoulder girdle. And that's been another simple cue that's worked very well. But, I mean, guys, take the cues from Dean here because if there's one guy that knows planking, I would say it's Stu McGill. But if there's a second guy that knows planking, it's going to be Dean Somerset. <laughs> I'll have to test out some of those cues you were using and see how they work out. I mean, if they make a big difference, I'm going to steal them and use them as my own. One of the best thieves in the industry. <laughs> We've been teaching uh, uh, planking variations uh, a little bit on my site, but then also a couple articles on T Nation where we talked about uh, abdominal training in general. And I'm a big, uh, big fan of that 8 to 15 second plank. The RKC variation is a good one. But really, you know, that's just a name. You know, as long as you're tensioning the full body and really just trying to have that. Uh, mechanical and neuromuscular linkage of all segments of the pillar, I think that's just the key. You can call it whatever you want, but as long as you're getting maximal tension, if you're shaking a little bit, that's a good thing. Yeah, I, um, I'm kind of on the fence about that shaking aspect of things. Like I, I understand like when you're working really hard, you're probably going to shake a little bit, but I've been looking at that for like the last 20 years and like why do some people shake when they move and why do other people not shake when they move? or when they try to generate tension. And the only thing I can come down to is the guys that are shaking when they're moving, they're not quite stable enough in that position. So the body's kind of fighting to try to find that stability. You see that in guys when they're flexing and they're just shivering and shaking all over the place. It doesn't mean that they're not trying really hard, but they might not just be, I guess you could say, having the right balance of contractile forces and it's kind of going back and forth, sort of like an oscillation. Right. I've seen shake the mechanism of shaking a lot more uh, using the plank as a, a quasi uh, finisher for a workout, whether it be a lower body or like a push or pull emphasis heavy day at the upper extremities. It's almost like that last that last bit of energy can get out, and that's where I see really the shaking mechanism, just because uh, the metabolic capacity of the tissues is just so low at that point, and it's just getting crushed. But uh, we also program, uh, you know, the very short plank variations as uh, a neuromuscular activator, as a pre-dynamic warm-up, and I barely see any shaking in that, even when somebody's like maximally trying to squeeze their musculature throughout their body. So it, it would be interesting to see, uh, you know, what actually is the mechanism behind those shakes. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely be something that I'd be interested in looking at. 
what I see is the guys that are like the really strong guys, they tend to not shake whatsoever and it's almost like they have zero movement occurring. Uh, the guys that are kind of struggling with it or kind of beyond what their limits would be, they seem to shake just to take more. So, I mean, that's just kind of like my inquisitive uh, look at what's happening and saying, hmm, why is that different? Maybe there's something to it that relates to strength, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just going completely off wall. <laughs> you know, I, I've thought about that a time or two myself, but for most people, they don't know what it is to tension first and foremost. So having them try to actually squeeze hard enough to shake, it's something that they'll never be able to do. But it's just having that cue of like, you better be squeezing hard. <laughs> you might even shake if you do it correctly. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they're not going to be able to. But again, that's a diagnostic to look at. Maybe uh, there's some instability throughout some of the segments of that kinematic chain. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're, instead of it being 100% effort that they need, maybe it's only like 90% effort. Like it might be one of those things where instead of having like full range of motion, you reduce the range to make sure they're still maintaining the effect. Maybe you just have to dial back on the intensity to take to make sure that they're getting the right benefit and building stability without going so hard that they just throw themselves off wall. But yeah, there's some truth to that too because uh, when people think about ab training or like pillar training in general, yeah. it always has to be 110%. But especially for some of the more fundamental movement patterns working out of those like uh, the quadruped position or even like a half kneel, there doesn't need to be 150% contraction from the glute and, you know, the four layers of the abdominal cavity and the shoulder girdle. I've seen that, you know, using the cue of about 25 to 50% through the pillar works very, very well to have people really be able to control the mechanisms of a dynamic movement from the lower extremity or the upper extremity, but also still be semi-athletic with the motion. Yeah. And I mean, I've had to do some work with some uh, pelvic floor reconstructive clients and there are some specific breathing modalities that a physio that I work with, she uses a lot with really good success. And when I'm working with them, sometimes I have to tell them, you know, you're working way too hard at this. You got to dial it back to like 50% of what your current effort is because otherwise they're, they're bearing down on it so hard that they're actually creating the problem we're trying to fix. So that, that could be something that we consider too. And there almost might be uh, something behind that as well. Um, people that are just more tonic in nature, uh, they just have a greater sympathetic response. They're unable to really control the amount of tension that they're able to put through uh, adjacent body segments. And it's more of that motor control, that neuromuscular stabilization, that's what we're trying to get at as coaches and almost reducing the amount of overall tone in the body. So really playing with that everyone's going to be a little bit different whether you need to ramp them up or ramp them down but uh really finding that that key spot where they can maintain tension but also have smooth athletic motions with that uh, stability through the midsection is huge mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's always going to be a consideration now you've written a lot uh, of really really good stuff over on T Nation in like the last like five years or so. I think that's where I I first heard your name because you know I'm a T Nation junkie. I have been for probably over a decade now, but it seems like like 2011 you really came to the forefront and started writing instantly some classics. Um, you know I've gone back and reread multiple of your articles just because I like to use them as gold standard 
coaching mechanisms for myself. You know, if I really want to improve somebody's performance program, I'm going to look for you for a certain amount of things. What really got you into, I know you're, you're full-time training as well. You have so many products coming out, but what really got you into writing and being an educator on top of all the training that you're doing in person up in Canada? Well, part of it was, um, I think about 2008 or 2009, I had a couple of clients that were like saying I was almost like a doctor, kind of jokingly. And I'd always been interested in going into medicine and always loved the concepts of it. So I thought, well, why don't I see what I can do with it? So I actually took the MCAT exam just to test and see where or not I actually had the basic requisite skills to get in and bombed it hard. <laughs> Apparently, you need to know chemistry to be a doctor. That, that's something that's kind of a, a common concept, especially if you're prescribing medications. Um, but yeah, I bombed out the MCAT exam. I think I got like tw the bottom 20% in the physical sciences aspect, um, but I got in the top 5% for the writing sample. So I kind of used that as a, an indicator to say, well, guess where your strengths are? Where do you think you should be spending your time and your energy? I mean, I could easily just say, well, I'm going to spend the next six years getting my organic chemistry mark into a higher position where I could barely pass by. Or I could start writing and use some skill set of that to be able to benefit me. So at that point, I decided, well, I might as well start up a blog and start writing a little bit and started developing a bit more of a, a concept as far as what my writing was going to be entailing, finding a voice. And then I approached T Nation through a, a buddy of mine, Tony Genelacor, we've been kind of teaching workshops all over the place and he was my first in to be able to get to T Nation and then I just started pitching ideas to them and sending different concepts, writing articles and they started publishing them. So that was kind of how I got into things was by thinking I could be a doctor and then realizing I couldn't and then going from there and saying, well, where are my strengths actually lining up and let's follow those. That's, that's an unbelievable story. Uh, literally to have something as objective as an MCAT score on the writing section to tell you, wow, you're really dominating this scene and you should really spend more of your time doing what you're awesome at. That's yeah. amazing. Uh, <laughs> I ask that question sometimes and I'm like, most of the answers I get are like, oh, you know, I thought I was a really good teacher. So I wanted to teach more people, have a bigger reach. Like, yeah, that's all well and good. But literally you had a talent for this. That was, did you know that you were a good writer before you took that MCAT? Well, I mean, I always aced English classes and had really good writing samples whenever I put anything in that way. And it was one of those things where I could sleep through an English class and still get 100% on the exams. But I never really thought of it beyond that. And I always enjoyed writing when I had the chance to write and putting things together. But again, it was one of those you miss the forest for the trees kind of things. So it was I was looking at writing as like, oh, yeah, this is cool to be able to do. I don't really want to do it, but it's there. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to chase sciences, sciences, sciences. But then you have that complete black and white objectivity of here's the exam showing, no, you do not do well in sciences the way you think you do. But you do really well in writing. And it was just such a, a big discrepancy between uh, the science aspect of things where I would need to be at least average in to be a doctor. Like I was so far below average, I think the test actually shook its head at me. <laughs> But to show that I was in like the top 5% in writing, it's like, hey, guess what? There's this massive difference between where you think you want to be and where you should be. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I should do that then. And I just followed that, that line of things. So it wasn't really a hard realization to come to. It was more like, yep, there's that. Okay, so I could either beat my head into a wall trying to be something that I'm not or something that is incredibly a huge weakness of mine, or I could just follow my strengths and 
do that. So I was like, well, why would I want to waste time and energy doing something where I could just be mediocre at? Whereas I could do something where I could be at least slightly above average and not have to spend as much time or energy getting there and actually have some fun with it and make some money. I mean, if I went into med school, I'd probably just be finishing now, which would be 10 years of my life and probably $400,000 worth of debt. And I mean, yeah, I could potentially make the money back over my lifespan, but at this point in time, I, I would be financially broke and needing to work 60, 70 hours a week just to make ends meet. And with a wife and two dogs as my kids, you know, that makes things a little bit challenging. You got to keep food in those dogs' mouths. Exactly. I mean, they're tiny, but man, they eat a lot. <laughs> you have tiny dogs? Oh, yeah. I got a Boston Terrier and a French Bulldog Boston Terrier. How much do they weigh? Uh, Max is about 26 pounds and Freckles, we got her, she was a rescue dog, they both were actually, but when we got her she was 11 pounds and she's up to 16 now. Oh wow, so yeah. I'm going to go on air and actually on the record saying that I have two dogs myself and yeah. both are under 7 pounds. Oh yeah. <laughs> I walk them on a dog leash every day, uh, a dual leash every single day around the neighborhood in my muscle shirt and yep. it's my little Iditarod sled team so <laughs> I get laughed at all over the neighborhood but yeah, I'm glad to know that you have you know, two little dogs as well. It makes me feel better about you know, my future as a coach, as a practitioner, as a writer, as everything. Well, you know, if you define your masculinity by the size of the dog you have at the end of the leash, I mean, that's compensating <laughs> for something in that respect. But I mean, it's sort of like the guys that drive the jacked up, lifted up kits. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, well, what are you compensating for that you need to have this gigantic truck, massive dog, and, you know, tiny, tiny whatever? You know? <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that, but, you know, I just figure if it makes you happy, go for it. Don't worry about what anybody else says. But, I mean, Bostons are such a great breed of dog. Like, they got so much energy, personality. And they're just clowns the entire time. But also because they're like low allergy, I've got bad allergies to begin with. So like when I've been around dogs like Labs or Golden Retrievers or even Rottweilers and Pit Bulls, like I, I start sneezing and watering like crazy. So I can't really have those kind of dogs around. Whereas Boston's are really low allergy. I can run my face in their fur and not have any issue with it whatsoever. So. For me, it was a necessity where it's like, you got, if you want a dog, you got to get a dog that doesn't make you absolutely hate life. And they were the ones. So if It'll I could hate life in a different way, well, yeah. shit all over your house. Well, yeah, the, the little one freckles, like we got, we rescued her from a backyard breeding operation. She'd had four litters by the time she was two and she lost an eye on a crate injury. So she's only got one eye and she's never really lived in a house or been on grass or anything before we got her. So. She goes through separation anxiety whenever we leave and any morning that we wake up, we usually find puddles and logs of poop on the floor because you know she's still learning how to be a dog in a house. So we got to deal with that on a daily basis. I feel your pain on that one, man. Uh, <laughs> I feel it every single day over at the Russin household, something's yeah. going awry. You know, on the dog topic, there's something that I wanted to ask you about just as a, just as a movement scientist. So yeah. every morning, uh, our dogs sleep in the crates, and yeah. they're, they're in there for about 12 hours sleeping while we're all sleeping, you know, the two kids and my wife and I. And mm -hmm. every morning, we come and let them out, and literally their first step is the most explosive thing you've ever seen, and they take off full speed, run up the stairs, and it's amazing. And it's like, well, they didn't stretch. They didn't foam roll. You know, they didn't do any activation drills before they sprinted. Like, how are they able to do that? They also don't live to past 20. So, I mean, you can consider that into the mix too. Like, they develop osteoarthritis and 
uh, a lot of joint tissues way sooner than any human ever would. So, I mean, yeah, they, they can do that, but at what cost? I'm not saying that it's the, the worst thing in the world for them to be able to do, but we're different people. We're different animals. We're different organisms. So, I mean, if you compare how you get out of bed at, at your age to how your kids get out of bed, that would be a bit more of an apt comparison. Like, yeah, dogs are able to do that, but they're fast twitch and then they sleep for 23 and a half hours a day. <laughs> and you look at cheetahs, they're kind of the same thing. Like, they're going to sprint out of the gate and go as hard as fast as possible for about 20 or 30 seconds. And then they're going to sleep the rest of the day if they didn't catch the animal and eat it. So in many ways, like humans are built entirely different than any other animal on the face of the earth. And the fact that we have an advanced aerobic energy system and we also have the longevity of our tissues that other animals just don't have. Dare I uh, compare humans to supple leopards? You, you can if you want to, but I mean... We always compare ourselves to animals that we want to appropriate. I mean, we got Batman, we got Catwoman, we got all this kind of stuff going on. We always want to take on characteristics that are admirable of other animals. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're humans. I mean, a really, really great book that looks at that kind of stuff is Paleo Fantasy by Marlene Zook. Uh, she's, um, I'm hoping I'm saying it right, but an evolutionary biologist. I don't know if she's a paleontologist or anything like that, but she actually looks at how evolution occurs and how biology adapts to different things and she's looked at things like how many generations do fruit flies need before they can adapt characteristics to allow their species to survive what do crickets do to avoid getting predatorized by other organisms how are humans and cheetahs different in terms of our uh, metabolism and our energy usage it's a really cool book to be able to look at and say you know if we believe things and concepts from like the paleo diet and concepts like that where it's like oh we haven't adapted to this well, guess what? We actually have. We can see evidence of adaptation and evolution in our species compared to evolution and adaptation from 10,000 years, 20,000 years ago. And we can see that we're different organisms compared to other animals. I mean, we can take on those characteristics if we want to and be superheroes in our own minds. But at the end of the day, we're still the exact same people we were the day before. So, I mean, yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, when I was in DPT school, I had this like weird obsession just with the evolution of the human body. And yeah. I did a lot of reading uh, with a evolutionary biologist out of Harvard, Daniel Lieberman. You know, yeah. he, uh, he was popularized, I think, back in like 2010, I want to say. I might be wrong on that. But he came out with a paper about, you know, the barefoot running. And it really just like changed the game on things. But then a couple of years later, he actually wrote a book called uh, The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. And that was amazing. Uh, just the amount uh, of information from an orthopedic standpoint, but then from a systemic standpoint. It was really a game changer uh, a couple of years ago for me when I first read that and the way that I went about uh, treating my patients, also programming for my clients, and the overall just wellness that I was trying to preach to everybody as a practitioner. So, you know, that's another good book if you if you guys out there need a reading list. But have you read that one, Dean? I haven't read that one, no. I haven't done too much going down the evolutionary biology track, but it's really a cool field to look at and uh, think about. I mean, my big issue is I always want to try to apply what I learned. So with that, I'm still trying to figure out how I can actually take that information and use it. Other than just talking to clients and saying, you know, here's why you're not a cheetah or here's why you're not a puma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff, you know, like that goes way back when they're trying to like assimilate uh, animals to humans. It, it doesn't really get me off. But 
when we're looking at just the human species and the evolution of that, uh, that really just had a, a big interest in me for many, many years. And, and I'd like to say those years in academia, those are really what shapes you as, uh, you know, a future clinician and as a coach. Yeah. I mean, we're all the sum of our experiences. So you're going to have people that went through the exact same program that you did who approach training and everything completely differently because of what their experiences are. Like you got somebody who's got more of like a mixed martial arts background versus somebody who's got an endurance training background versus somebody who just wants to compete in figure and fitness contests. You know, they're going to approach things entirely different based on what their experiences are. I mean, I was fortunate enough that I played a lot of sports when I was growing up. I was incredibly bad at all of them and I was able to get an experience at not just the on-field stuff but also the rehab stuff because I was incredibly bad. So because of that, I'm able to, you know, take and steal from different things like mixed martial arts and rugby and basketball, football, all that kind of stuff. So I'm able to use that as much as I need to. But I mean, I'm not going to say I'm great at any of those aspects of training, but it does help out at the end of the day. Yeah. And the more experience that you can get in different uh, niches, especially in our industry, the better you can synergize a program that's going to more individually fit a person as opposed to force feeding that little niche that you absolutely love as a trainer. So yeah. uh, we see that a lot too. Yeah. I mean, talking about getting out of your comfort zone, like I had to take a, a workshop on pelvic floor and different breathing modalities. So it was myself in a room full of 20 women and we're all <laughs> talking about vaginas all weekend. So you want to talk about being the awkward man out in that situation. Yeah. Like that's something I don't normally get too much in into in terms of my own training or personal uh, directive of learning but the physio who I was working with who's sending me a lot of people she's like if you want me to keep sending you people you got to take this workshop all right well that's a no-brainer you want to make money or you don't want to make money well let's go make money and help people out at the end of the day so I took this workshop and completely outside of what my comfort zone was and what I was used to or expecting but you know you'll learn by doing that kind of stuff and you figure out what works and what doesn't what what was your big takeaway from that? Because I know that you've taught a lot with uh, positioning, also diaphragmatic breathing, uh, breathing mechanisms. Uh, what was your big takeaway from something brand new in the pelvic floor in the women's health sector? Um, a lot of it comes down to you know what is the end goal supposed to be? Like this is a course called hypopressive, which is kind of like negative pressure breathing. So you know how every breathing that we do, where it's like diaphragmatic movement, or whatever, when you inhale you actually increase intra-abdominal pressure. This is a way that you can create kind of like a negative pressurization in your abdominal cavity with the intent to be able to pull the pelvic floor up. So it's kind of interesting, like if you increase pressure in the, the abdominal cavity, it pushes the pelvic floor down in somebody who's got a dysfunction or injury or pathology or something like that. So doing something where you can actually create a negative pressure and do a different directive of movement, more distal to proximal, that, that's really cool to be able to do. And then I was thinking about how can I actually utilize this with other people that don't have pelvic floor issues. Found with a lot of the hockey players I was working with with groin injuries, they got a lot of benefit out of it. But aside from that, it didn't really help people with low back pain, didn't help people with neck and shoulder pain. A few people developed some thoracic outlet syndrome type stuff, but it was interesting to see where it could be used and how you could use it and develop different training modalities from it. Like the big thing I guess you could say is that if you're always trying to push, you never get the opportunity to pull. So you have to be able to get the, the core to be able to not just create increased pressure, but also decreased pressure to see benefits. 
Yeah, and I'm just flashing back right now to like the three semesters I had to take of women's health physical therapy. And I remember sitting in class being like, why the hell do I have to take this shit? And, you know, maybe advance it a decade. And I'm like, man, this stuff's really becoming relevant for a bunch of my athletes right now. And uh, even with my wife, you know, she she just gave birth to our our first son a couple months ago, and we had to really re-educate her stability, her packing, and also her breathing patterns in order to stabilize the pelvic floor because she's an athlete as well. So, you know, it always comes full circle on you just when you don't think anything's important or when you think something is, you know, below your level of knowledge, it always comes full circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm remembering stuff that I took from university 10, 12 years ago. And it's like, oh, that's why they taught us that. Yeah, okay, great. Meanwhile, I've been completely ignoring it and forgetting about it the last 10, 15 years. So. <laughs> I always have that, that feeling in the back of my mind, like I'll, I'll read something really cool online or through a journal. And it always like, I always remember something along the lines that we learned in school, but I can never remember like actually sitting in class and mastering that concept. And I always want to go back to school and be like, all right, let's do another four years of grad school and see, you know, what I would learn today as opposed to when I was actually in school. And I I think that's really interesting too. Like you were saying, you know, you wanted to go pursue medicine at one point, you know, going back. And there's a lot of people in the fitness industry that are getting out of their undergrad. They're going into personal training, strength coaching. And it seems to be the more popular route to be going into a master's program or even try to get into DBT or DC program. And people are moving later and later in life into these uh, advanced degrees. And I think that's good for our industry to have uh, somebody that's more mature coming through, but also has the practical application of working with human beings, being able to communicate and really just being a coach before you're a practitioner. Absolutely. I mean, there's never really going to be a bad time to have greater education within an industry. Um, When people come to me and they're saying, I've got a lot of uh, trainers coming up and saying, you know, what do I do? Do I go to the university or do I get this? And a lot of the time I'll say, what do you want to do with it? I mean, you could take a PhD, but if all you want to do is train clients, you pretty much wasted about eight years of that education compared to doing something that would be much faster. Not saying that eight years of education is ever a waste, but if the end result is that you just want to be able to train clients, a PhD might not be the best fit for you. You'll know a lot of stuff, but that's setting you up to be more a researcher and instructor in universities, not necessarily to be a trainer. Whereas if a trainer wants to know advanced concepts really well so that they can work with high-level clients, awesome. Grad school is going to be the way that you want to go because you'll be able to do the things that you wouldn't be able to get just from like a weekend certification or a diploma or even just a bachelor's degree. So a lot of it is just going to come down to what does that individual want to do from that information. Yeah, I think taking the information and the education and matching it with what your optimal goal is with your career is huge because we, we get the same thing. We get emails from people and they see a DPT at the end of my name and they're like, well, to be a great strength coach, you have to be a DPT, I guess. I'm like, no, <laughs> like that's not how it goes. You know, this is just kind of the route that one person went through in myself. And uh, it's always figuring out what ultimately you want to do and what's going to make you happy in your career and what you're best at. I think you nailed it on the head before is that you had that MCAT score and you instantly knew what your strength was and you moved to that strength 
almost instantaneously. A lot of people would be like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to be a doctor anyways. And they'd study for the next three years, get all their OCHEM done, do all that stuff, and then get into a program and, like you said, be pigeonholed for the next 10 years of their lives. But I think it takes a special person to be able to look within themselves and figure out what they truly want, just like you did. I mean, you knew your strength. You knew where your talent was. And obviously, you're reaping the benefits right now. Yeah, and I mean, I'd love to say it was an instantaneous process, but it was like, okay, well, I did really well in the writing sample. I sucked on the organic chemistry and the physical sciences. And then I kind of sat on that for a week and didn't really do anything, trying to think what's my next move going to be. And I kept looking back at the scores and looking back at it. I mean, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, so it took me about a week to realize the exact obvious thing that was staring me in the face. So with that, I thought, well, maybe I should try to do some writing. And it was a process to think, how am I actually going to do this? Because with no writing experience, with no website, with no actual formal publication under my name whatsoever, it's like, well, it's a tough nut to crack for a lot of people. So I thought I could put a lot of, t a lot of time and energy into this, but at the time I had a fair amount of debt between like car, student loans, credit cards, mortgage. I didn't want to spend a lot of money to be able to do that. What's the easiest way I could do that? Well, starting up a personal blog for free would be all right. <laughs> And then it was just a matter of, you know, how can I progress this? What can I do with it? And is this going to take a lot of time away from training clients? So it was one of those things that I'd love to say was an instantaneous process. But it took probably about a year after I got that MCAT result back before I started significantly putting in any kind of writing. So, But still, a year at the, at the end of the day is barely anything. Uh, you know, I know people that go decades without being able to take action. And yeah. that's where you really get into like that purgatory and you don't know how to move forward or what to do. And you're really left with questions instead of really moving towards something. Yeah. And I mean, I'll be the first to say like I, I was in a good position because I had a, a thriving clientele. I was working 70 hours a week training clients and it wasn't anything where I was really struggling just to get by. I mean, yeah, I had the, there's always the need to have more money and there's always a, a benefit that you could find from doing different things. But it was one of those things where I was thinking, well, this isn't the end of the road. Like, if this doesn't succeed, I'm screwed. It was, okay, well, maybe I'll try this out for a little while and see what happens. So it seemed to work out okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's worked out okay. Uh, seeing that your blog is absolutely amazing. You're on every publication there is. You know, touring the world with Tony G, throwing out some amazing education resources. I think it's worked out pretty well, Dean. Yeah, it seems to be going all right. I'm not going to complain. Now tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about what you and Tony Gentlecore have going on. I know you're doing a bunch of continuing education courses all over the place. Yeah, we're uh, last last year uh, we started just getting the concept of uh, we should do some workshops together and kind of provide our different thought processes at the same time. Like Tony comes from like the very high end strength and conditioning aspect where he works with like a lot of baseball players and a lot of pitchers. And that subset of population has really specific needs when it comes to things like shoulder health and uh, keeping them able to perform at a high level repeatedly. Whereas mine comes from more like the lower level end of things where people are like the walking wounded and barely able to keep things together. So um, we had really similar takes on a lot of things and we wanted to be able to show people how you could actually blend those concepts together, whether you're working with um, elite athletes or whether you're working with post rehab clients the elderly, the young, all those kind of things. And it seemed to go really well when we first did it. We hit up places like um, 
Washington, L.A., London, uh, Edmonton, which is, you know, a, a hot spot of activity, uh, <laughs> Boston. And we decided to kind of switch things up. And we thought, well, instead of just having it be like the Dean and Tony random show where we just talk about stuff we want, let's actually set it up so it's a bit more specific. So we started actually putting together a workshop where we spend an entire day on the shoulder and then an entire day on the hip. I mean, those are the two major movement-driven joints in the body, and everything kind of hinges off of them one way or another. So we thought, well, we put together these workshops and we start actually promoting how we approach things like, how does Tony approach shoulder training or assessment, or does he do anything involving corrective aspects and strength training? How does he cue people for different movements? So it's pretty much like the entire thought process of how we approach training the shoulder and training the hip, whether it's for a special population or whether it's elite performance, any of that kind of stuff. So it seems to be a really good combination. Now, do you guys have dates uh, this upcoming year again set? Yep. We already taught one in Edmonton a couple of weeks ago. We have St. Louis coming up at the end of September and then Chicago in October and LA in November. Man, you guys are moving. Yeah, and they seem to be selling pretty well. So, I mean, we're getting a lot of people interested in it. And we've got continuing education credits set up for NSCA. And uh, if people have organizations other than NSCA they have their credit through, I know that you can actually use those credits to petition specific organizations to get credits. So even if it's not an organization that we've got credit for, you can usually use them to get credit. Man, perfect. Now, where can more... Uh, people find more about you and what you're doing, your articles, your content, everything. Uh, DeanSomerset.com and then there's also Facebook, Twitter. People can also do a Google search if they just type in my name and pretty much any topic, it'll come up with anything that I've written on that topic if I've done anything. So that would be a good place to start. I mean, if you want to see where I do most of my work, it would be on my own website and I usually link to articles that I've been featured in too. So. Perfect, Dean. Uh, guys, make sure to check this out. It's one of the best resources out there. And if you're looking at having something that's going to actually be a game changer for you, check it out. Dean, thank you so much. I know you're busy, dude, like I said before, and I really appreciate you coming on today. Not a problem, man. I'm glad we were able to finally connect in person, too. I mean, the, Facebook has a lot to offer, but it also has a lot to limit. So when we're only communicating through email and Facebook, it's always nice to sit down and chat with a guy and actually hear what they have to say and how they say it. Absolutely, man. Big thanks goes out to Dean Somerset for joining me on the episode today. Until next time, I'm Dr. John Russin with the Strength Doc Podcast hosted by UpDoc Media.